0: If you've got your Bibles, would you like to turn to the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John. We're continuing our series, Jesus at the Centre. Jesus at the Centre. And um, guess what? We've reached Chapter 2. Woo! Making steady progress. If you know John's Gospel particularly well, you'll know that Chapter 2 contains two very different stories. Two very different accounts. One, the wedding in Cana, and the second, Jesus clearing out the temple courts, whip in hand. What inspired John? Obviously the Holy Spirit, but why did John feel that he wanted to put these two very different stories together in the same chapter? Um, That's what we're going to look at today, really, because I think they've got a lot more in common than perhaps we first think when we read them at face value if you remember John's whole emphasis in writing his gospel was to show Jesus for who he really is we said at the beginning of this series uh, we read out John's statement in chapter 20 why he wrote his gospel he said this is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what John's heart is. He wants you to know who Jesus is so that you might have life in its abundance, that you might know hope, that you might know healing, that you might know peace, what we've been singing about and talking about in our sung worship earlier on. You might know life. And throughout his gospel, he's always focusing on these signposts pointing to who Jesus is. He links stories together and he's always giving the, the bigger picture explanation. You know, he's, he's saying, here's a sign. This is the grace of Jesus. And now here's the truth. Here's, here's the background. Here's, here's the bigger picture explanation. And in chapter 1, he describes Jesus coming from the Father, being full of grace and truth. What, what does that phrase mean? Well, again, this is what we're going to be looking at this morning, using these two stories in chapter 2 to see how Jesus' grace and truth is applied in these two very different situations, Jesus' full of grace and truth. So hopefully we'll tie them together at the end, see how we go. First story, the account in verse 1 of uh, Jesus turning water into the wine says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I think it's important to note Jesus went to parties he wasn't like John the Baptist, who was a recluse. Jesus was very much out there in the community, just like street pastors and school pastors. He got involved in people's lives. He wasn't a recluse. He even got a reputation for it. He mixed with people. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They've no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, Quite a surprising response, really, isn't it? Just to say, Jesus wasn't being rude to his mum, calling, w- calling her woman. Actually, in the Greek, it, it's, it's not a disrespectful term, it's quite a respectful term. He wasn't dishonoring her, it, it's, it's quite a tender, respectful term. In fact, it's the same phrase he uses when he speaks to her tenderly from the cross. It's that same phrase. So, he wasn't being rude. Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Quick pause there. This is the first time Jesus introduced this concept of his hour. What is his hour? I just didn't feel like it at the time. Stop bothering me. No, because if you look at it in the rest of the context of John, you start to see that actually Jesus is working to a very specific heavenly timetable. A very specific heavenly timetable. What was this hour? We'll be coming back to this as we go through this gospel of John. But in John 7.30, we see that when he stirs up trouble in a way, they seek to arrest him, but no one could lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. God's timetable is not interrupted. He's sovereign. His hour had not yet come. They couldn't arrest him then. John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Big hint as to what this hour is. Later on, John 13, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Finally, just before his arrest, he prays in John 17, Father, the hour has now come. Jesus knew full well what his mission on earth was, and that was to die for the sins of the world. This hour that he's speaking of was the hour of his death. Yet now, at this wedding, was not the time. And so, really, he... He didn't want to stir things up too much to provoke an early arrest. He wanted to do something, however, that would speak of who he was, to reveal enough of who he was to those who had hearts humble enough to receive the truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He wanted to leave a sign that was enough for those whose hearts were open to actually get a bigger picture of who he was. That's why Jesus spoke a lot in parables. You know, sometimes we can read these parables and go, Jesus, why can't you just speak more clearly? The reason was he was giving enough information for those whose hearts were open to receive the truth. That's why he used to often finish his parables with, let him who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if your hearts are open, just receive this truth. Those whose hearts were hardened just go over their heads for that time being. He was working to a heavenly timetable, though. You know what? God still works to a heavenly timetable. Maybe there's some people this morning who need to know that afresh. God's timing is perfect. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus was born at exactly the right moment. Stars aligned. All the prophecies coming into line. He was born at exactly the right time. He died at exactly the right time. Even the right time of day. Time when that scapegoat would have been killed, sent off as well. The the scapegoat would have been sent off. The temple torn from top to bottom. It was exactly the right time. Jesus rose again at exactly the right time. Three days after. God's timing is perfect. And in the fullness of time, Jesus will return again at the right time. We can trust his timing. If you've been waiting for something, know God's timing is perfect. Verse 5, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. That, in a sentence, is probably the single most profound piece of advice anyone can give anyone. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. I think a lot of our issues would probably be solved if we follow that advice. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You know, it's a place that we have to get to. You know, the wine had run out. There was nothing left. I, I've got nothing left. I, this is embarrassing. And yet, I believe God allows us to go through those times so that we literally have no other choice but to throw ourselves onto His grace and His sufficiency. Total reliance on Him. Total reliance in his spirit, we we need to be aware of our own inadequacies before we can fully embrace his total sufficiency. Are you aware, are you living in that reality that actually in ourselves we've got nothing to give? But in Jesus, we have his total sufficiency It's a place we must never move from. We so often move back into our own self-sufficiency. God's saying, no, no, don't leave that place. Be totally reliant on me. That's, that's when our potential embarrassments can turn into his empowering. When we acknowledge, actually, I've got nothing to give. Jesus, it's all down to you. Mary knew enough about her son. To be able to trust him totally. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holding from 80 to 120 liters. That's a, that's a lot of wine. 800 bottles, if you're good at maths. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And if you don't know the story, the the servants drew out the wine, took it to the master of the banquet, and he says, this is the best wine ever. Most people just save all the the rubbish to the end when people have had a bit too much and won't notice the difference. You've saved the best till last. An incredible story of God's grace, this undeserved favor on what were probably his mum's friends we knew Jesus didn't come from a wealthy family very likely his his mother's friends were not wealthy either what a disgrace though to run out of wine at a Jewish wedding which used to last for a week would have been such fuel for gossip and yet he came through and saved them from a great disgrace But you know what? John tells us that this is more than just a story of God's grace. It's also a sign. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to something. In verse 11, it says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, he uses that very specific word, sign, through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Jesus was pointing to the truth of who he was through this sign. And, and, I, and I think you do have to be careful not to read too much symbolism into biblical accounts, um, you know, so that almost the historical context is removed. We have to be careful that we keep it in its historical context. But John is, is very good at, at explaining the bigger picture, the meanings behind it as well. And I really believe Jesus was pointing to something very significant when he chose six empty vessels that John adds were the type used for ceremonial cleansing. I think Jesus was pointing to something greater than just, look what I can do, look at my power. He was pointing to his very mission. On why he came You see the Jews had very strict cleansing rituals They were constantly having to wash their hands And bathe depending on times of year And ceremonies and what they touched And what they did To make them acceptable to God In fact we know that most Jews didn't feel the need Or think they needed to get baptised To go through the the baptism of repentance Because they thought well our cleansing rituals are enough And so it was a real hindrance to them And so Jesus was making, I believe, a a subtle but very powerful statement that although those vessels were originally designed to offer an outer temporal cleansing, what Jesus would offer would be a deep, permanent, internal cleansing. He replaced this outer water that washed the outer body with wine that they took into themselves. So we know Jesus often symbolized his blood with wine, communion, He hands that holds up this cup. He says, "This cup is the cup of the New covenant in my blood." What was he saying? He's saying, "Only his blood shed on the cross can truly cleanse someone." From the inside out. And you know what? This is a cleansing that will never run out. It will never run out. A time is coming when there will be an internal cleansing. Jesus will usher in a new covenant, better than all the ceremonial laws, a covenant that will cover once and for all all our sin. An inadequacy, an emptiness. 1 John 1, 17, the blood of Jesus purifies or cleanses us from all our sin. A total cleansing. So although this, this miracle was pretty subtle, only his disciples and, and the servants really knew what had gone on, actually he was making, I believe, a massive statement about himself and his mission. That actually, one day, gone will be all those daily sacrifices. Gone will be all the ritual cleansing. He was creating a completely new temple. His body. It's a massive statement. And that's why I believe John then fast-forwards six months and takes us straight to the temple in Jerusalem. So let's go there next. You see, this was Herod's temple. It was an incredible temple. It was awesome. It was one of the greatest structures of the time. And even today, although it's been destroyed, you still get that wailing wall. It it looks immense. It is impressive. But this was the second temple. The first temple, you remember, was built by Solomon. It was uh, subsequently destroyed in 586 BC when God's hand lifted off Israel due to their disobedience and rebellion when they got taken into captivity and after captivity it was then it began to be rebuilt remember when we went through that series on Nehemiah in Nehemiah and Ezra's day the temple was 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 began to be rebuilt they completed the wall under Nehemiah and yet a lot of people wept because what they'd rebuilt was just a pale shadow of, of Solomon's temple and yet years later when Herod Came to influence and power. He started a massive reconstruction program around 20 BC that ended up with a place looking like that. Incredible. To be honest, it had more to do with his own pride and uh, kind of gaining favor with the people than it had anything to do with God. God had long since left the building, his presence had long since left. So it's into this temple that Jesus comes. He, he came several times we know as a boy, a uh, good Jewish boy, fulfilling the law. And yet this was probably his first recorded visit as an adult. And what he saw grieved his heart. Because rather than a place that honored God, he just saw extortion and profiteering, crooks, profiteering at the cost of the very poorest. And the tragic thing was, this was happening in the courts of the Gentiles. This was the outer courts. So, so any Gentile, any non-Jew really wanting to find out more about God, you know, doing their just looking course or whatever, they would come into these outer courts. What would they be faced with? Basically an extortion racket. It, rather than pointing these people to God, that was the Jews' Commission. They were God's chosen people to reveal God to the nations. They were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to point people to the worship of the one true God. And yet, now it had just been reduced to forcing people to buy sacrificial animals at inflated prices. Oh, but before you do that, you've got to change your money into our special temple money at a hugely exaggerated exchange rate. It was a ripoff. Rather than shepherding people, they were exploiting people. It was no wonder Jesus was angry. And yet he didn't just fly off the handle. He didn't lose it. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It was very calm, shall we say, premeditated. We're told he made a whip. That would have taken some time. But boy, was there zeal. Boy, was there passion for his father's house. Zealous for his father's house. And he makes this whip and he drives the animals out and turns the tables over. Clears the temple. It wasn't an, an impulsive human anger. This was a passionate zeal. For true worship of God. know, if he was everyone's favorite wedding guest a few months back. He was certainly not flavor of the month now. Let's pick it up in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, who do you think you are coming in here, acting like that? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples record what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There we go with John again, just giving that bigger picture. He was writing in 90 AD. He had had a lot of time to reflect and think back. He had seen the effect that these signs had made. The tragedy, of course, is that what was designed originally to help people encounter God had actually become an idol in itself. You know, rather than the wholehearted worship of God, they were worshipping money, worshipping religious control and power. Seriously ugly. You know, that it's, it's painful to think this was where they were meant to encounter God and when God finally did show up in the person of Jesus, they didn't want anything to do with him. No, no, we we like our little thing we've got going here. We don't need God. Tragic. What's their response? Show us a sign. Show us a sign. And they didn't need a sign. They didn't want a sign. Jesus had been doing signs the whole time. You know, if they wanted to believe, they would have believed. But their hearts were hardened. This was just a sidestep. That's why Jesus comes straight back at them and provocatively says, You want a sign? Destroy this temple, I'll build it back up in three days. I'll raise it in three days. Of course, once again, as John says, he's pointing to his death, his mission on earth, but also to his resurrection. He's in effect saying, Look, your idolatry and greed and and unwillingness to believe the truth will ultimately send me to the cross. But hey, I will be raised up in three days. John 10, Jesus says this time to the Pharisees, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. So he's saying you can't keep God in your little box, no matter how ornate and how grand it is. I mean, Solomon understood this with the first temple, this grand temple of Solomon, which is what Herod was trying to recreate. Even Solomon, as he was dedicating this amazing temple in 2 Chronicles 2, 6, said, who is able to build a temple for God? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Who am I to build a temple for him except as a place to make offerings before him? That's the right sort of heart. He knew. God can't be contained by a temple and yet God chose to make that temple a dwelling place where people could encounter him to encounter his presence. Jesus was stating, look this temple, it's just a shadow of actually what is to come. Actually a time will come will come and it's coming soon where you will access God through me. I am the temple. My body. You know, whoever you are, Jew, Gentile, wherever you are, don't have to come to Jerusalem, you can encounter God through me. A few weeks' time, we'll be looking at the woman at the well. Jesus will tell her exactly the same thing. He says, t- a time will come when you will worship the Father, neither in this temple or on this mountain, but you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not about location, it's not about heritage. It's about the heart. Have you received the truth about Jesus Christ? We encounter God through the body of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. He is the temple. Temple not built by human hands. This is Stephen in Acts 7 declared. Ephesians 2, 20, sorry, 21 and 22 says, In him... Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Even more than that, as we put our trust in Jesus, we too get to become part of this new temple. One Peter describes us as living stones. We're, We're part of this temple, guys. Something that's far more glorious than the former temple. As Haggai prom- prophesied, this, this new temple will be far greater than the former. Ephesians 2.22 goes on to say, In him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Isn't that, just get your heads around that for a moment. You too, are being built together to become a dwelling where God lives by his Spirit corporately, with a temple of God. Individually, we are temples of the Holy Spirit as well. Incredible, radical truth, Jesus was saying. And it's a truth they just didn't want to hear, a truth they rejected. And ultimately, a truth that took Jesus to the cross. And yet, while Jesus did rise three days later, that wonderful grand temple that they had all their pride in, that they were desperate to keep hold of, was destroyed in AD 70. Never to be rebuilt. You know, only eight years after they actually finished the thing, seven or eight years after they finally finished it, was flattened by the Romans. But this new temple, through Jesus' body, has been growing and growing and growing. And you and I are part of that that new temple, but really the story goes to show how far we can slide when Jesus stops being the centre of our lives, when Jesus stops being the centre of our worship. You know, Jesus is passionate and zealous for our worship. That's what this shows. He is just as passionate and zealous for his living temple, his church, you and I, as he showed when he came in with that whip in his hand. He wants his temple pure. John, sorry, Paul, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are living temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You know, we we too can fill our lives, our living temples, with all kinds of junk, can't we? We can fill it with busyness and anxiety, fear, greed, all sorts of different kinds of lusts money, power, sex. Unforgiveness can clutter our temple. You know, the sole purpose of the temple was worship. The sole purpose. Of ourselves as living temples is worship it's the same thing to worship God with our bodies to worship God with our very lives and maybe even this morning Jesus by his spirit is just pinpointing areas that he needs to come and do a clear out let's be as zealous as Jesus is for his temple you know even as I've been preparing this Holy Spirit has just been kind of nudging me in certain areas, going, I want that cleared out. Maybe for some of you as well. He's speaking too as well. We are living temples. You know, it's wonderful to think that. When when street pastors go out onto the high street, they go out as living temples. People don't have to come into a building. We can take the presence of God with us onto the high street. Wonderful. Amazing. People can encounter God. And yet, when our lives are full of junk, when we've been compromised, we're not going to reveal Jesus as as powerfully as we can if we are zealous for our own temple. Jesus came with great grace, but also with great truth. Sometimes the truth is harder to, to swallow. You know, people love the miracles. They're wowed. By the healings and the signs, and yet back off with the truth sometimes. You know, it's one thing to respond to a a miracle, it's quite another to respond to the miracle worker and put your trust and commit your life to him. You know, that's why John closes this chapter by saying, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows we can be fickle. And the truth is, the bottom line is, there were, there were many who believed in the signs, but not many who believed in who they pointed to. And so, as we read through John, we see that people are amazed at Jesus healing the blind man, and yet are offended when Jesus starts talking about spiritual blindness. He comes in grace, but also with truth. People loved it when he fed the 5,000, people followed him everywhere. The next day, he's like, Oh, yeah, you're the crowd who I fed. And then he starts talking about being the bread of life. People start to grumble. I liked it when you fed us. It's getting a bit weird now. Particularly when Jesus goes on to say, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. They start leaving in droves. And yet, as we read in John 1, to all who did receive him. You know, that word receive literally means to actively lay hold of, to pursue I want Jesus' grace and his truth to impact my heart. To all who did receive, to those who believed in his name and not just in his signs, he gave the right to become children of God. What a privilege. We get the right to be called children of God, to be built into this wonderful temple, to be dwelling places of his Holy Spirit. You know what? Jesus doesn't allow us to be neutral about him. John certainly doesn't, when you read through his gospel, he doesn't leave room for us to be neutral about Jesus. He is both the one who pours out his wine of forgiveness and cleansing. He is also the one who comes, whip in hand, zealous for pure worship. He comes full of grace and truth, and we need to receive him full of grace and truth. I'd love us just to have the opportunity now to respond. God knows our hearts. He loves you. Maybe as I've been speaking, as I said, the Holy Spirit has been pointing stuff out. You know Jesus wants you free of. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. As a church, we've been, we've been built into this amazing dwelling place of God. Even now, Holy Spirit, just bring fresh revelation. If there's stuff we need to clear out, if there's unforgiveness, if there's hurt that we need to let go on of. You know, those, those Sadducees held onto that temple so hard, so hard that they failed to see God when he did show up believe there's some people here who need to let go of stuff. might even be stuff that's good, but it's become a bit of an idol in your life. You know, Jesus wants all of you. He's zealous for you. He's passionate about you. Just receive his cleansing. Receive his forgiveness. Holy Spirit just fill each thirsty heart here now as you filled those water jars will you fill each one of us clay vessels fill each one of us afresh with your new wine of your spirit maybe there's people here who feel just empty hopeless Like those wedding hosts, this is really embarrassing. I feel so hopeless. Jesus is here. He wants to fill you with new wine that never runs out. Just come and drink from him now by his spirit.